Happy New Year and welcome back to another episode of In Our Tech Society. A lot of the technologies we've talked about on this podcast, robots, virtual reality and augmented reality, or the metaverse if you prefer, algorithms, they all have applications in the context of relationships, be that in terms of dating apps or sex robots. My guest today has written a book which tries to make sense of the ethics of these technologies from her Christian perspective. Now, I think the relationship between faith and technology is just fascinating on its own, but I also think that a lot of what we discuss in this interview provides an interesting way of thinking about technology and relationships, whether or not you're a Christian and whether or not you agree with the arguments. Without further ado, here's Dr. Kate Ott to introduce herself. Sure. So I am the Jerry Allen Mary Joy Stead Professor of Christian Social Ethics and Director of the Ethics and Values Center at Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary. I feel like the title is just a mouthful and that doesn't tell you much about who I am. So I'm an ethicist. I work in Christian communities and the majority of work I do is around helping people understand sexual relationships, relationships with digital technology, as well as professional ethics. Fantastic. I'm really excited to discuss this. Your book was really interesting and I think really needed as well. So let's just start by talking about the book. And could you just start by telling us kind of why you wrote it and what you're aiming to achieve with it? So Sex, Tech and Faith was a long project in the making. I started probably in the mid 2000s. I go to Christian communities, churches. I do sex education workshops for youth, young adults, parents. And I kept getting all of these questions about digital technology and its relationship to sexuality, mostly moral panic questions <laughs> from parents. And it led me to start asking my own questions. At that point, my children were pretty young, so I wasn't dealing with these issues. And I had gone to seminary and gotten my PhD where way before digital technology was even a topic to, uh, to study. So it led me to my own questions, to wanting to provide good answers to these folks that I was educating. And what I realized was I didn't know enough about digital technology to write that book yet. So I worked on Christian ethics for a digital society, which is a different book. And that really helped me understand uh, how to think about digital literacy related to ethics and how to just generally raise community-based questions about our use of technology. And from there, I felt prepared to start combining what I had done on sexual ethics and sexuality education with adults and with youth and be able to talk about that related to digital technology. So that's where sex tech and faith comes from. That's why I wrote the book for those those communities. It doesn't mean, however, that it's uh, only for Christian communities from my perspective. It does deal with a lot of Christian theology. But I hope anyone who picks up the book can learn from the process behind it, which is to help people understand how we come to certain views and values around sexual ethics culturally. And obviously, many of us live in societies dominated by Christian thought on that. So it affects us, whether that's our tradition or not. How to think about raising our digital literacy. What are the issues involved in the way the technology works, how it's built, how we use it that affect us. And then lastly, 
how we even do ethics. So I have a little bit different view, I think, from your average person on the street on how we do ethics. Most people who come to my classroom think ethics is a list of rules, things we should and shouldn't do. And we can eventually develop those lists. But I really do not think that, especially related to sexuality and digital technology, I don't think lists are helpful because they're outdated as soon as we write them because the technology shifts so much. So I want people to learn from this book that you can bring your core values to the questions you ask. And in that process, you can start to figure out what works for you, what works for those you're in community with, how we might push back on some of the digital design that leads to uh, more negative interactions with it and relationships. But really to think about our values first and then to bring those to the questions we ask as we raise our digital and sexual literacy so that we can come up with the best ways to live for ourselves and together as a community rather than a list of rules. One of the things that really stuck with me was in the opening pages of the book, you're making the case that we need to rethink sexuality and technology. And one of the examples you give is about how digital avatars have, in some contexts, taken the function that clothes would have had before. Could you just explain that point for us? Sure. So I, I mean, most of how we represent ourselves in the world is now digital and how we interact with one another. So how I appear on a screen to you is the way in which you are perceiving who I am and how you will interact with me. The same way, you know, I didn't have digital technology. I mean, I, there were computers, I'm not that old, but <laughs> there was no social media. Um, we really didn't even have avatars, emojis weren't a thing yet, right? But in high school, I cared what I looked like, the clothes that I wore. They portrayed who I was and how I culturally fit into the kinds of systems and peer groups we had created. That same thing is happening when we're in digital technology. And we now know, right, there's all these questions around Instagram and the way in which it directly affects body image or Snapchat and the filters that we use. We start to both see ourselves in new ways, but perhaps question the way our own embodiment, the physicality or materiality of it might be a limitation. So we have new ways of expressing ourselves online and we can we can use different forms of technology to shape ourselves online the same way that we have done that historically with other technologies like clothes and haircuts and tattoos. Yeah, and I guess kind of one very clear example of that is dating apps, because you're, you're trying to present yourself in a certain way with a limited number of photos, um, potentially an avatar, I guess it depends on the kind of thing you're using. But you have a whole chapter in your book dedicated to dating apps, also marriage sites, that kind of thing. How do you think these change um, communication? And you talk about meaning making as well in sexual relationships. Let me first say something about the photos and, and the avatars, especially on dating apps. Each of those different platforms, I mean, they have different purposes, right? A, a, a hookup app versus a dating app versus a marriage app all, all have very different designs built into them. I was just talking with a young adult last week who was saying that he was really frustrated with the way in which he was, you know, the kinds of likes he was getting or, or 
taps, I guess, on on the dating platform he was on. And he went and had professional photos done of him. And his connections went way up. So when we think about, does it matter how we present ourselves? Or am I choosing to present myself in the best light, even though eventually I know in a relationship, someone's going to see me with my hair not brushed and no makeup on. This is definitely happening. And it's creating a sense that first impressions are extremely important. And maybe even those first impressions, let's be positive and say it's the best case scenario of our best selves being put out there. But in other cases, we might be putting selves out there that don't really even match up with who we are offline. And so it it raises a question of integrity. I think it also raises a question of how much importance in, in relationships we are now putting on an appearance based system. So that's one thing I think that dating apps have really shifted about the way in which we meet and get to know each other. Now, appearance has always been an important factor, if not a significant factor, in how we meet people and who we are attracted to. So don't hear me saying that that's a bad thing. Like, physical attraction is an important part of a relationship. But determining that only on a few photos or determining that that is the primary way to create a relationship, I think moves us further and further away from the ways in which we generally form relationship. And I think relationship is relationship, whether it's a sexual relationship, a friendship, or a stranger that you meet, how we treat people and how we form relationships tend to have very similar kinds of functions, right? We bring our values to it. We judge people based on it. It also tends to be something we do in community and support one another. So one of the primary concerns that I raise related to dating apps um, and the variety of them, I guess, is that they remove our community from the way in which we meet people and form relationships, at least at the start of it. I there's a way in which I sort of lament that fact because I'm not faulting people <laughs> when we don't have the same social circumstances to go out and meet people that we used to. I'm not saying it's bad to use these apps. I'm just saying ask yourself where is your community in that process? Are you sitting down with your friends and like swiping to look at photos? Maybe you are. And if so, great, because then you're getting feedback from other people around you. You're getting buy-in to supporting you in that search, in those relationships. The one thing I would say that I think some apps do, so this is probably more on like the long-term relationship apps, they provide you perhaps with what we used to have when community was part of these formation of relationships. You get a ton of information about these people before you decide whether you want to engage with them or not. Or maybe you have to do an initial conversation and then it releases more information to you based on the design. But there's a way in which, you know, in the old school version of dating where, you know, your friends and family were part of it and they'd be like, I really think you'll like this person. And they introduce you. There was a way in which you already knew a bunch about that person because you knew their community, their family. And so some of the more long-term dating apps are trying to mimic that by providing that information for you. But I just want us to remember that 
you know, it's edited, it's always trying to be presented in the best light. And so how is it that we can build community and friendships into that process to make sure that that those relationships are always part of the broader experience we have of community and not sectioned off from it. And I'm curious on that. It's potentially a difficult question to answer, but why is community so important? And does it have to be an established community? Because, for example, I know people who've moved to new cities and they've used dating apps to try to meet new people um, where they don't know anyone, for example. So I think that's a perfect example of actually that it's a positive way of developing a new community. But what I hear in that example is that part of the goal is community. And all I'm suggesting is that if part of the value of building relationship is not community, then we are, I think what we're doing is severing a significant aspect of how relationships function in our lives. And perhaps leading ourselves into relationships that become too primary and too important and maybe leave us stranded if they don't work out. So from my point of view, again, this is my my bringing my perspective as a Christian, but I do think it's also generally how society and, and humanity functions. We're built for relationship. We're not built to only have one relationship. And I don't mean that people should just go and not be monogamous. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not built to not have friends, to not have family. Now, I may go and create a chosen family because the biological family I have maybe, you know, doesn't accept me or love me for who I am. That's not true in my family, but it might be true for a lot of other people. You know, I need friendships. I need multiple relationships to kind of balance who I am in the world. And I also, so this is my Christian perspective, I need a relationship with God, with with spirituality beyond myself. And so my definition of how we form relationship actually comes from that, that also God's not only asking me to have a relationship with God, but wants me to have relationships with these other people. And that's how we're created to be in the world. So my only concern is that if we engage in certain kinds of digital technologies in order to sever that larger relationality in the world, or we engage in technology in a way that's really superficial and creates multiple relationships that we can't in any meaningful sense continue to nurture, then either the diffusion of relationship or the the primacy of it, the singularity of it is, I, I don't know, it's sort of robbing us of who we are in the world and, and the value that community has in supporting us and, and keeping us whole. You have this chapter as well on relationships in a digital space. So that's relationships somehow involving virtual reality or augmented reality. And I think a lot of people would find this instinctively a bit weird. So could you just give us some examples of what this could mean? So it could be anything from, you know, the person who's online gaming and and meets people in their gaming pod, but has never never met them offline before but this person becomes a best friend um so it could be that kind of relationship or it could be a relationship where you're part of some sort of world making game and you hook up with 
another avatar online. I mean, depending on the gaming process of it. For some people, they are specifically seeking sexual relationships in virtual reality. And so that might be either joining an application, an app, a gaming site where that's possible, or there's a number of sex tech and uh, adult film stars who are joining forces and offering you know, an experience with a porn star in virtual reality. Some of them are are educational around sex education, helping people understand what helps them in terms of their sexual desire or sexual performance and allowing you to experience that in virtual reality. So what part of the sale of it is, is that you're getting this experience, you're getting to understand yourself, learn about yourself, maybe learn about how to engage in a particular kind of behavior without the shame or failure that often comes with doing that offline with folks. So those are some of the examples that I researched for that chapter. And it also could be people with different kinds of disabilities, et cetera, who might not be able to, for, for various different reasons, have those kinds of relationships physically. Yes, definitely. Definitely. And I mean, two of the examples I give in the chapter, I take from Black Mirror. So if anyone watches the show, um, the San Junipero episode where someone does have a significant physical disability and can't engage in particular sexual behaviors, but can't even engage in, um, they're in a vegetative state, so they can't engage in other kinds of experiences. I do want to say that those examples are like far off in the tech industry in terms of development because they're neural network examples. And so, you know, while some companies are working on neural networks, we don't have that actual experience of virtual reality yet. But for many people who have a variety of disabilities, whether that's neurodiversity or physical disabilities, online spaces offer them a lot of ways of interacting with folks that, that offline spaces don't. It's also a place that a lot of folks who have diverse sexualities or what we might call minoritized sexualities and maybe can't experience them offline in the geographic region they're in, or they just, they feel overwhelmed or shameful maybe because of the Christian communities that they are part of that are harmful to them, that they can have those experiences, especially learning experiences online. And one of the things that I found really interesting reading your book is this Christian idea about uh, sex as knowing somebody. Could you just talk about why this makes VR and AR quite difficult to think about in terms of Christian ethics? So I want to say that that concept is probably more a Jewish concept than a Christian one. But like all Christian concepts, we have, you know, tried to suck it up into our tradition and make it ours as well. But clearly in the in the Hebrew scriptures, you'll see texts where someone says, oh, you know, they knew each other and that knowing is meant as synonymous with that they had been having sexual intercourse or were trying to procreate in the hebrew scriptures and i think that that scriptural idea of knowing someone as it relates to our sexuality forces us to think with a much broader definition of sexuality so the Christian tradition has historically really limited sexuality to act-based, you know, sexual behaviors as this list of right and wrong. When we're all sexual beings from birth till death, and so sexuality is part of who we are. It doesn't mean we have to engage in behaviors. And 
So therefore, there must be all these other aspects of sexuality that determine who we are. And so I think the knowing from a perspective of sexuality is about knowing ourselves, knowing our own sexuality, but also as I express my sexuality, knowing someone else seems a, a much broader understanding than just I did X with someone. So as I think about virtual reality, if you approach it with our, our sort of very narrow Christian understanding of act-based sexuality as our ethics, then we're just asking, did this person interact with this avatar in this way? Well, then we have to ask questions. Is the avatar, does it have a user behind it? Are you actually engaging with that user or is it just the avatars that are engaging with one another? You have to wonder whether it is, is it an act at all if it's only done, you know, online instead of offline? Is it really real if it's not your material experience? So I think the old version of how we think about sexual ethics does not help us at all when we come to VR. But a broader understanding, a scriptural understanding of knowing someone might really help us. So if I embody myself in an avatar, it could be an, a non-human animal. It could be, it could be male. I mean, I'm a cisgender, white, heterosexual woman, for those of you who don't know. I could, you know, I could take on an avatar as a male person of color, right? how I embody myself is informing how I understand myself in the world. And that's also going to shift the way I interact with whatever the other avatar is. So I think this understanding of knowing ourselves when it comes to VR and we think about sexuality opens up this question of, you know, what values am I bringing? Am I being honest about how I see myself embodied or how I want to express myself? Am I learning something about my own sexuality in this experience? Does it matter how I treat the other avatar if there's not a user behind that? Does that morally form me or deform me if I harm that avatar just because I think it's an it instead of a human person? So I think it opens up all these questions of knowing self and knowing self in relationship that could help us shape our sexuality in ways that maybe old act-centered versions of sexual ethics don't help us really understand. And we'll come back to this question of whether it's a person you're interacting with in a second, but I'm just interested to pick your brains on this AR, VR, kind of what it means. Does it make you have to think differently about the relationship between the body and the self and whether we are just our bodies um, and I'm thinking particularly here about this Christian idea of the body as a temple I think it changes the way we have to think about it but I'm not sure it changes it in the way that most people would initially assume uh, I think folks who don't engage in a lot of VR um, kinds of activities or games would probably default to saying it's not real right this is a this is just a projection of who you are. But one of the primary things about virtual reality and the way in which it's going to significantly develop over the next 10 years is that there, there is a kinetic connection, right? So physical connection between 
your experience of that online space and how your body reacts to it, right? Your body is getting feedback for, you know, what might be next to you or if you bump into a wall and eventually probably some other senses like how things smell. So in a, a virtual reality experience is not fake. You are embodied and you are getting kinetic feedback. I would also argue that a lot of the research shows that you are also emotionally connected, right? So it's not just visual as one sense. You're getting this sense of feel and touch. You might get a sense of smell eventually in the way they design the games and the, and the headsets, but you're also emotionally connected. I mean, you can even think about people who do, you know, do gaming where the, it's just, you know, like World of Warcraft or something, right? Their adrenaline goes up, their body responds to that space. Maybe they feel angry or sad or frustrated as they're playing. So those same things are happening if you're using virtual reality to form relationships, whether that's friendship or, or sexual relationship. And so we, I'm trying to help us think about the ways in which we are still embodied digitally, but that it's expanding. So um, there's this theologian, Cutter Calloway, who talks about the fact that our skin is not the limitation of our embodiment, but it's the interface of that embodiment, especially as we think about online experiences. So I think one of the examples I can give that most of us understand is, you know, when you touch your phone, your smartphone, <laughs> And there's like that little haptic connection where you feel the button or you feel the, the slide or something, right? Your body reads that as you have, you have done something to your phone. You have interacted with it. You have changed something. Those same things are happening in virtual reality and probably your body's gonna respond that same way if it's engaging in, in types of, of sexual behaviors that we would engage in offline as well. Just before we continue with the interview and start talking about sex robots, remember to subscribe if you haven't already to keep up to date with our weekly podcasts. Oh, and share it with anyone you think might be interested. There really aren't many interviews you can find elsewhere on these topics. Anyway, back to the interview. So we're going to move on to a new topic, and it's something that you've mentioned in passing or alluded to, and something there's an awful lot of hype around. Um, we're going to talk about sex robots. Where do you even start when you're trying to think about the ethics of sex robots? I want to start by saying that I never thought I was going to write a chapter on sex robots and Christian ethics ever. Um, but one of the things I found out when I started writing about you know, digital sexuality was that sex robots is a really primary conversation point. Um, it's there's not a huge user community at this point. And honestly, our imagination of what a sex robot is probably doesn't fully exist yet. Uh, so it's what we're dealing with right now is more of a combination of sort of what what you might understand as, you know, a high end sex doll with a head on it that has a smart speaker in it. So you can imagine talking to, you know, your Alexa or Siri or something that's embodied in this particular way. So, so most of the literature that talks about sex robots and ethics tends to start with a number of issues. You know, a, a huge one, and as a feminist, I 
you know, I think this is an important one, the design of those robots. How are they perpetuating certain kinds of stereotypes around gender and and um, sexual embodiment? I mean, they're basically all Barbie dolls with, you know, AI heads inside of them. <laughs> um, Another point that tends to come up is surveillance technology. So just like you interact with your phone or your smart speaker at home, that data is going somewhere and people are using that data to improve the kind of interaction you're having. But what's happening with a sex robot in terms of surveillance? Likely they have, you know, cameras, they can visually track what's happening in a space. Where is that data being sent? They have all the voice interactions that you're having with them. They have all the other kinds of sexual interactions you're having with them because many of them are built with various kinds of sensors to respond to types of sexual touch. And then the third is around robot rights. So, you know, just like things like animal rights, even though something is a non-human, does it not have certain kinds of rights? Should there not be certain types of regulation around this? And I think that the primary regulation that's been easy for people to have agreement on is that we probably shouldn't make child robots, child humanoid robots, because those can be abused and misused in certain ways. But should we make adults humanoid robots? How are we supposed to interact with them? Do they have certain kinds of rights? So I think that's where that's where most of the ethics conversations tend to happen. As well as I think there's some people who have a real worry that like robots, sex robots will eventually replace humans. And um, I'm not so worried about that because everyone who, you know, is part of the sex doll, not everyone, but the majority of people who are part of the sex doll community are really clear that like they interact with these things because they are dolls. Like that's what they want. And they still have a lot of human relationships. Like they, they haven't given up um, human relationships. So I don't think we have precedence for the fact that um, people will just replace human contact altogether with robots. But I, I actually, I don't know. I, I, I'm grateful for all the people who are asking those questions and writing on those things. And I do try to cover at least a couple of the main points around those issues in the chapter. What I'm really interested in is what does interacting with a sex robot say about how I as a human understand my sexuality and understand sexual ethics. So I'm more interested in the user and the designers of this than I am per se in in thinking about something like robot rights or the kind of design of the robots. I mean, it's all comes together in conversation, but I guess my starting point is the starting point of the human user and what's going on for them in terms of their moral development as they engage with a sex robot. And just to push you on that, what do you think that interacting with a ro robot does then say about kind of people and their relationships? So I think it can do a number of things. It depends what we bring to that interaction. Uh, there is some data that shows for folks who have difficulty with human to human interactions that this human to computer interaction or human to AI interaction with a sex robot can be helpful in their learning in their own sort of social development and empowerment. And so if that's one of the reasons you're interacting with a sex robot um, so that you can gain 
you know, more self-assurance and, and confidence in approaching other humans, maybe that's a really good use of, of sex robots in our world, especially from my point of view in a society where our sex education is really bad and um, our, our general ability to communicate sexually is influenced by mass media more than it is by the kinds of really good education that could be available were we to commit ourselves to that socially and, and in our schooling. I wonder how much we will, as a human, if I were a user of a sex robot, how much we can draw the line in a sense, I guess maybe it's a really squiggly or fuzzy line, but of saying, you know, there are certain parts of my sexuality that would probably be underdeveloped if I were only interacting with a sex robot sexually, because sex robots, you know, if, if things like sensuality and intimacy are as important as we think about sexuality as the sexual behaviors I engage in or my sexual health, then I think we have to say that an AI at this point cannot express intimacy in a mutual sense. Like they might be programmed to be polite or funny or, you know, or sexy, but that's not intimacy. They're not freely choosing their own reaction to you. And so there's a limited repertoire of emotional engagement that one is having with a sex robot. Now, that might be why some people choose them. But I don't think that that's leading to a holistic view of sexuality as we interact. And so I would love for us, if if that's going to be part of how we think about sexual ethics, to say, okay, I recognize this fact and this is sort of a limited engagement. I understand that and I can seek development and moral formation in other aspects. I also really want us to, to ask the question, what is my interaction with a sex robot doing to my own moral formation? How do I treat that robot? And that's where this might get into things like robot rights and the ways in which we design them. You know, is it this broad diversity of the way the world is created? Or is it the Barbie doll stereotype of things I'm interacting with sexuality, sexually? So is it is it expanding that for us? Is it welcoming that diversity? I also wonder, is there a way in which it might help us rethink some of, so this is on sort of the larger social cultural level, if sex robots do become part of a more normalized way of experiencing sexuality, can we use that socially and culturally to push ourselves to rethink aspects like neurodiversity, or physical disabilities when it comes to sexuality, or a variety of gender and uh, gender identity and sexual orientation expressions that right now I think are really limiting the way in which we understand sexuality. And from my Christian perspective, the way that God has created the world with all this amazing diversity. And so that, that would be a positive aspect of maybe if we designed and used sex robots in a way to culturally expand ourselves. Would that help us in the long run to fulfill the kinds of diversities that we already have? And in the book, you briefly start to think through kind of almost from the robots perspective, the aspects of sexuality that robots do and don't experience, don't you? 
Yeah, so I'm I was trying to think about it. so my definition of sexuality, I've said it a few times, but in piecemeal is that um, and this isn't mine, this is a widely held sort of sex education understanding that sexuality includes sensuality, intimacy, sexual orientation and gender identity, sexual and reproductive health, and sexual behaviors, whether we do or don't engage in them, right? Our choices around that shape our sexuality what would a robust sexuality look like for a sex robot? Are there ways in which we could design a robot who chooses sexual behaviors or not, who can give consent in a sense? Um, can we, sensuality is probably, and is actually already being designed into a number of the robots in the sense of um, a variety of senses in terms of being able to get data about them just like I do, right? I smell something, my brain processes that data, tells me what that smell is. Maybe I make a comment, I like it or don't like it. Same with with touch, with hearing, with with speaking. So a variety of robots are already being designed with those sensory experiences. As I said earlier, I think intimacy is probably the most limited aspect. And it, interestingly, most folks would say that robots don't have a gender, right? Now, could they be programmed? I think they're already programmed with a gender, right? You you get a smart speaker or you get a sex doll that has a particular kind of voice. We are gendering that kind of computer before we interact with it. Uh, and there's there's also ways in which, you know, maybe, maybe sex dolls don't actually have a sexual orientation or they're like omnisexual. Are they designed to care? to have that desire. And so until we can program those aspects, I think they have a really limited repertoire of what we would consider sexuality. But, you know, design just keeps getting better. And so I I will wait and see how, how far the design can grow <laughs> um, in terms of having those aspects. And this is slightly off topic, but how do you kind of think about sex robots as a Christian? Are they... I don't know, are they created in God's image or how do you even make sense of them? So I, as a Christian, I think of us as co-creators with God. So that's, from my perspective, that's one of the aspects of how humanity is is different than a, a significant part of creation. And so that gives us a certain type of responsibility. So everything that we create, you know, the books that I write, I think are a co-creational kind of drive that I have in myself, right? That's the gift. I hope it's a gift that I have. Um, we'll see what readers think, but um, you know, other people create art, other people create buildings and, you know, so all of these aspects of what we create, I think should be imbued with some sense of responsibility of connection that I have to the divine and, and the goals of that creation. And so I don't think sex robots are any different in that sense. However, I also, um, I probably differ from many Christians that we do not need humanoid versions of sexual things to interact with. Like, I think that we will continue to interact with other humans sexually, but people for millennia 
have interacted with other kinds of toys sexually. And so if these toys become smart and have artificial intelligence, do they have to be in a humanoid form for us to interact with them? Or, you know, could we design them in, in different ways that sort of don't grant the same kind of cognitive interaction, right? Like I, I interact with my smart coffee machine differently than I would interact with something that's embodied as a robot dog because I, I literally feel differently about those embodiments. And so, you know, I, I think people will always design robots in humanoid forms or, or some version of that, but I don't, I think the question's still open, at least from my Christian ethics perspective, whether that should be a humanoid form or whether we could design certain kinds of what we might call sex robots, but not in humanoid forms in ways that like actually fit with our bodies and our sexual desires across a diversity of spectrum in ways that don't reinforce the kind of stereotypes we have about humans. And finally, what would you like listeners and readers to take away from this interview in your book? Well, I hope I hope that the listener heard from me that one, that I hope we all get smarter about the digital technology we're using, like ask questions about it. How does it work and why? Because oftentimes I think we interact with it and it's asking stuff of us or we're interacting with it in particular ways without really stopping to think, why does it want me to do that? Why do I keep watching the next show on TV when it just keeps playing, right? Like stop for a moment and ask yourself, how is this shaping me and do I want to be shaped this way? So I, I hope the reader hears or the listener <laughs> hears that and the reader of the book hears that. I also, from my perspective, which is why I hope that it it rings true with a wider audience than just Christians, is that, you know, we tend to have a shared social value around, you know, caring for our neighbors. And yes, I believe that that comes from you know, loving God and God loving me that I should also love my neighbors. But if what we really want to do is, is care for our neighbors and create a society where justice is the primary way that our social systems interact with us, then we have to carry that through to our digital technology. And that's not pervasive yet. And it's going to take us as a community to make that more pervasive. So how could I come to my relationships offline and online in ways that ask, am I, am I loving my neighbor? Am I seeking justice here? Are we creating more inclusion and diversity or are we limiting it? And I think if those were kind of our general ways of approaching, we might, we might have a different kind of interaction with our digital technology, but we might also hopefully have much better relationships with one another online and offline. That's a really positive note to end on. Thanks so much for talking to us, Kate. Yeah, thank you so much for having me today. Thanks for listening, and remember to subscribe and share this with anyone you think might like it. Also check out our episodes Sex Robots and the Perils of Cuteness, I know, what a title, and The Robots of Humanity, if you want to hear more about robots and our relationship with them. We had some really cool guests in those episodes. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>